1: This is William Friedkin. I directed The Exorcist in 1972 and 1973. The film was released on December 26, 1973, in 26 theaters in the United States, before it had a subsequent run around the world. The Exorcist was written for the screen from his novel by William Peter Blatty. The Exorcist opens in northern Iraq, and we actually filmed in northern Iraq. We filmed in a little town called Mosul, which is up in the north. And what you're looking at now are scenes from an actual dig in Hatra uh, that was taking place when we came to film. Hatra was a a little town of 100,000 people that was sacked or destroyed by the Sassanians in around 30 or 40 B.C., and the Sasanians who attacked the town killed all of the people, all 100,000 of the people who lived in Hatra, and they even cut off the heads of the statues. And a lot of the heads were being dug up at the time that we were making this film. Uh, you would see these beheaded statues, and it was very unusual uh, to see this team of German archaeologists that were supervising this dig. At the time uh, that we did this film, in Iraq, uh, the Ba'athist party was still in charge, and it was still basically a one-party, one-man dictatorship. The leader of the country then was a man called Hassan Boker, wasn't Saddam Hussein, but uh, Iraq was at that time at war with uh, Iran uh, to the east and uh, Syria to the north and Kuwait to the south. They were at war on all of their borders when we were over there making this film, and I was there with a largely British crew. The St. Joseph Medal, the little medal that Vonsito is examining here, is an element I added that's not in the novel. I wanted something to be found that was kind of a talisman, in addition to the uh, likeness of the demon Pazuzu, a talisman that would show up later in the film for mysterious and inexplicable reasons. It would later be found around the neck of Father Karras, the same St. Joseph medal, which is found at an archeological dig of a village that's thousands of years old where there is no way a st joseph medal would be found i went over to iraq with a clear idea of what i wanted to film but i wasn't sure where exactly i would do it i looked at a number of other archaeological digs before deciding to film at this one which is called hatra so i then adapted the elements and details of of Blatty's first chapter to what I found in Hatra because this is the kind of setting and scenery that it would be difficult if not impossible to duplicate. The place where Vonsito sits for example at the um, outdoor cafe where we establish that he is taking nitroglycerin pills for his heart is actually right across the street from the tomb of Nebuchadnezzar, who was one of the ancient kings of Iraq, or, or of Mesopotamia, as it was called in those days. And the tomb of Nebuchadnezzar is built on top of the tomb of the, of the prophet Jonah. And so we had our actors there, and we were actually filming right at the beginning of um, new era in civilization. And it took us about three weeks to film the first reel of The Exorcist in Iraq. Uh, I think the sequence runs just under 10 minutes. And it took three weeks to film because every day that we'd go out to film it was 130 degree temperature in the shade by 11 o'clock in the morning. At 11 in the morning, it was too hot to film anymore. You, You had to quit. And then we'd have to go back to these tents where we all lived right next to the railroad station in Mosul, Iraq, where the Orient Express used to roll in, and we'd go back to our tents and stay there from 11 in the morning until about 8.30 at night. And then there was still enough daylight between 8.30 in the evening and about 11 at night to uh, do some more filming. So we were filming split days was uh, a very unusual schedule. Vonsidov had to stay in makeup until 8.30 at night when we'd come back to film again, and we would just freshen up his makeup a little bit, and we wouldn't finish with him until close to midnight, and then it took approximately an hour to get him out of this makeup. So... Uh, beyond just portraying Father Marin in this sequence, it was a physical ordeal for Von Sidov to, to just uh, be prepared to do this part at all. It was an extremely difficult shoot, uh, both for him and for the two makeup artists, Dick Smith and Rick Baker. Originally, Blatty didn't have this in his script, but I felt that it gave you not only uh, the sense of exotic locale and mystery, but the the spiritual sense and the mystical sense that pervades the entire film, in addition to being an attention grabber because of its eerie uh, sounds and its uh, mysterious sights. And it is an actual archaeological dig. And the demon Pazuzu has, of course, been idolized in that area. So I restored this scene from Blatty's novel to the script. Even after everyone connected with the production of the film and with Blatty's book felt that it should be cut. And even though the the details might not be readily understood by an audience, the mood and atmosphere that it sets is... um, irreplaceable in my opinion by the way the woman in this carriage is 108 years old the statue of uh, pazuzu was built by our production designer bill malley it's a model of the actual statue of pazuzu which is at a mu at the museum in iraq it was built at warner brothers in burbank and shipped to uh the Exorcist crew in Mosul, Iraq, and it arrived about three weeks late, which delayed our filming. We shipped the model of Pazuzu over with Flying Tigers, and for some reason, it was lost. I think it was sent to Hungary or somewhere by mistake. It was clearly marked, clearly labeled, clearly insured, and it got shipped not to Mosul originally, but to Hungary, and then had to be rerouted to us in Mosul. And at the very end of the sequence, of course, he encounters the demon Pazuzu itself in the form of a statue. And you get the sense that he is girding up for a battle with the demon again, somewhere, somehow. So we went to the north of Iraq where Blatty had set this first scene in his novel. And I tried to, as accurately as possible, recreate the tempo and the tone and the mythology that is at the very heart of what The Exorcist is all about. And so the red-hot sun of Iraq gives way to a cool morning in Georgetown, coming in over the Potomac River, picking up the campus at Georgetown University, until it finally focuses down on the little three-story red-brick federalist house that is at the corner of 36th and Prospect Street in Georgetown, at the foot of which are the Hitchcock steps where Chris McNeil is, on this very morning, working on the script that she's studying for the film that she's making in Georgetown. I first heard about The Exorcist when I was on tour across the United States for the French Connection, which I had just finished directing and which was just about to open. And I was uh, in San Francisco, as a matter of fact, when a pouch arrived for me, and it had the galleys of The Exorcist in it, which William Peter Blatty had sent to me. And uh, I must say, I put off reading the book for several days. I I didn't have enough time to give to it. I felt also that um, Bill was best known as a humorist at that time. I had no reason to think he could pull off something like the psychological thriller that The Exorcist was supposed to have been. But finally I picked the book up and started reading it, and I was unable to put it down. I I just couldn't put it down that night. I started reading it at about 10 o'clock at night when I got back to the hotel after dinner, and I didn't finish up till about two, three in the morning. I read the whole book in a, in a period of about five or six hours, and I was astonished. I thought it was just a, an incredibly intense and moving uh, piece of work. I believed it totally, and it was only after the fact that I realized what a well-written novel it was. Good
0: morning, good morning, Mrs. McNeilis. How are you today? i thank you. It's okay. I've got the it. subject
1: of course, was original. I had never read anything at all like it. What this book was was totally unique as a story. And then the characters, I felt, were so uh, beautifully and richly portrayed. And in the course of the, um, of, reading the book, of reading the book, you find out so much about the ritual of exorcism and um, how it's still being practiced. And... Uh, what an unusual procedure it is, and how um, rare it is. But what Blatty did was to make it appear as though uh, it was something that going, was going on constantly. He did so in a way that it was like it was like reading a work of nonfiction that rarely comes you just along. It I knew Bill Blatty uh, years ago when. Uh, Blake Edwards invited me to read his script of the feature film of Peter Gunn, and uh, it had been co-written by Blake and uh, Bill Blatty. I read the script, and I I found it uh, severely wanting, and I went in for a meeting with Blake, and Blake brought Blatty into the meeting, where I severely criticized the script and and told uh, both Bill and Blake that I thought that it was Basically a travesty of a quite marvelous um, uh, television series. And Blake was became furious and outraged that my comments were of a highly critical nature. But Blatty later told me that he thought I was absolutely right. He felt that uh, the script had gotten away from both of them and it wasn't something that he was very proud of having done either. And... He, I, I remember him telling me how much he admired my honesty. He had never heard of a director who was going up for a job criticizing the screenplay that had been written, co-written by the producer. Needless to say, I didn't get that job. I didn't direct the feature film of Peter Gunn. But evidently, the encounter left something in Blatty's mind that impressed him about me. Whenever possible, I tried to uh, play moments in one take without a lot of intercutting, uh, without a lot of cutting around. I always would look for a setup that seemed to say it all. So in this shot, you have the background of Georgetown University. It's, it's at the end of a working day where Chris McNeil and her crew have finished. And I set up a shot that would both pan and track and move away from the campus with Chris, without doing it in a series of cuts. As Chris um, is walking along, she encounters two nuns whose uh, uh, habits are sort of blowing in the wind. And I put that shot uh, very close to a shot of a guy on a motorbike and children running past her in Halloween costume. It's a juxtaposition of the idea of good and evil on the one hand, evil being represented by halloween and good being represented by the nuns I, I think there's a natural menace to people about guys on motorbikes but that might be subjective it is an image that i saw while um... walking in georgetown myself
0: Hi. Hi, how'd your day go? Oh, not too bad. it's kinda like the uh, walt disney version of the ho chi Minh story
1: but after i was signed to direct the picture Bill said, I have a surprise for you, and he handed me a complete screenplay of The Exorcist that he had written. I didn't know he had undertaken this because I was about to start work with him on on developing a script. So I read his script, and lo and behold, I I felt (laughs) that it was just not very good. I thought he had departed significantly from the novel. I thought that everything had been pumped up. And I thought that what he emphasized in that first draft screenplay was the horror film aspects of the story rather than the deep spiritual content that that was there that um, was certainly terrifying enough when treated factually. I told Bill then I thought his script was not very good and I wanted to start over and stay right with the novel. I wanted to adapt the novel as it was, without any significant changes and no heightened emphasis of the horror aspects of it. And so we set out to work together on a screenplay that was drawn almost verbatim from his book. I should have perhaps clarified the fact that the sequence that begins in the subway station is in Manhattan were I doing it all over again I would put a subtitle in there that says Manhattan cuz a lot of people are not aware that Karras has left Georgetown but I guess at that time this was the 70s don't forget and we gave people a lot of credit for trying to figure out what was going on in a film themselves without leading them through it every step of the way the drunk has a very distinctive voice when he asks Father Karras if he could help an old altar boy. You later hear this voice spoken by Reagan when she's possessed, and it becomes one of those unusual elements that is um, meant to distract Karras. Did he actually hear this voice repeated by Reagan, or is it something that jumped into his mind in a particularly trying moment of his life? That little moment is simply there to establish this very peripheral character's presence in the film for a more important use later in the film. Where Father Karras goes to visit his mother, it is an actual apartment. it's an interior right where the exterior was shot somewhere in the west fifties in on uh, the west side of manhattan everything that's in this apartment is as we found it except the props the photos of young karis the girl that might have been his girlfriend but all the furniture and the wallpaper and everything else is as it was we put up a crucifix on the wall and and uh, as I say, the personal objects, but all the rest of it is as, as I found it. I thought it was a perfect setting Mama. for how Karis's mother would live.
0: Of Mama. the Mama.
1: The woman who plays Karas' mother is a woman called Vasiliki Maliaros. And yes, uh, we met her in a Greek restaurant. The casting director, Lou Dejaimo, did. And he brought her to me, and of course, she was perfect. She had done some acting in Greek theater, and she spoke perfect Greek, and she's quite marvelous in the film. She's one of the... She's one of the reasons I think the film works. She is authentic she'll remind many people of their own mother especially uh, people whose parents come from the old country she's a very vulnerable woman she is almost a typical old country mother so many people could identify with her her appearance and her attitude and she has elements of my own mother and my own relationship with my mother as Blatty's relationship with his mother was similar to the relationship that he created for Karis and his mother so yes I knew very well that uh, or I tried to make this relationship resonate with an audience and I think the, the feature that most uh, helps that is the casting Tell of this me, woman Vasiliki oh, right. really, Maliaros
0: Like yeah. it?
1: Oh, it the studio funny. originally, Warner Brothers, wanted uh, <laughs> one of three actresses, either Audrey Hepburn or Jane Fonda or Anne Bancroft. And I, I thought those were good ideas. And the studio approached all three of them. They started with Audrey Hepburn. And Audrey Hepburn agreed well, to make the film if, if we would have filmed awesome. it in Rome. She lived in Rome at that time. She was married to an Italian doctor, and she didn't want to uh, leave yeah. Rome. And so they suggested to me that if I would go and meet with her, I could probably convince her to do the film if I would agree to shoot it in Rome. Well, I had no interest in wanting to make this film in Rome. I had absolutely no sense that um, we could do it any better technically anywhere else but with a United States crew and facilities. So I declined to do that. And... So they then moved on to Anne Bancroft, who they quickly learned was interested, but she was in her, like, first month of pregnancy. Then Jane Fonda was approached, and she turned the film down flat. Meanwhile, Ellen Burstyn had called me and, and said that she wanted to play the part. I knew who she was only from the supporting roles that she had done in films up to then. And I found her to be, you know, absolutely brilliant and uh, highly intelligent and highly knowledgeable about what The Exorcist was all about and its deeper implications. And I got interested in her doing this part, even though I knew the studio wanted a major star, which at the time she certainly wasn't. So when I went to the head of Warner Brothers at that time, Ted Ashley, and told him, now that we've been through Fonda and Audrey Hepburn and Bancroft, I would like to go to Ellen Burstyn. And I remember Ted Ashley saying to me, Bill, you know, I have complete faith in you and complete trust in what you'll do with this film, but Ellen Burstyn will play this part over my dead body. There's no way I'm going to give the lead in this picture to Ellen Burstyn. Please understand that. And one thing led to another. We couldn't agree on anyone else, and ultimately the the role sort of fell to Ellen.
0: Mr. Well, you know, it's okay.
1: This so scene between Ellen know, and Linda was, in fact, improvised. And the like the it? interesting thing about it yeah, like is it. Like that it? by the hey, time on? Ellen and Linda Don't came to film this idea, scene, they oh. had formed a kind of mother-daughter relationship. <laughs> yeah, Burke, this Don't scene was really. real. Linda Would came to like look up to and what to love I, yeah. and respect Ellen, like and that's like why they're able to too, play this scene up. so easily why together, so intimately, and and with such genuine affection for one another. I, I spent a lot of time down. getting them together okay. as friends. Marcus
0: comes around here a lot, because, well, he's lonely. Don't got nothing to do. No, well, I heard differently. Oh, you did? What did you hear? Huh? I don't know. Oh, come oh, on. I just thought. He you didn't think so, much. How do
1: you know? Because Burke and I are just friends. Okay? Really? Okay. I'm ready for sleep. Good night, honey. The fellow who plays the scene with Jason Miller here in the bar is Reverend Tom Birmingham, who was a technical advisor on the film. He was one of Blatty's teachers when Blatty went to Brooklyn Prep High School. He was a very early influence on Bill Gladdy, and one of the people who urged him to write the novel, The Exorcist. When I met Tom. Tom Birmingham, I thought She's alone he was ideal. Her. I mean, he was a wonderful character, great face. York, he's not an know, actor, he is still a priest at Could Fordham transfer, University in New York. But he was very helpful to me as a technical uh, advisor and so I cast small, him small in a small but You're pivotal role good. as a priest in the film. The lighting in this scene, in this actual tavern you know in time. Georgetown, it was a student hangout, safe. is modeled after the lighting of Rembrandt. And I took uh, Owen Roysman, the cinematographer, to the Metropolitan Museum in New York and showed him uh, a group of Rembrandt portraits that are collected there. And he, of course, was familiar with Rembrandt lighting, but we decided to play this particular scene as an homage yes, Mrs. to Mrs. Rembrandt's portrait lighting. Oh, greater, we're not the only ones to have I done have that. I mean, Rembrandt is a great minutes. source of inspiration to photographers and cinematographers, and has been and always will be.
0: Oh, circuit's my ass. He doesn't give a shit. How you let me f- no, I've got it, Sharon. It's all right.
1: Yes. What Blatty is always trying to suggest is that there are certain notions that are creeping into Reagan's mind that could perhaps be affecting her behavior. She hears her mother swearing later, and that's perhaps where the little girl has learned to use profanity, and it's a profanity that she later employs to a terrible extent. All of the ideas that are later distorted by the demon in Reagan were actually things from her own life, from her mother's separation from her father, from Reagan's longing for her own father. There is a still photograph uh, next to Ellen's bed, and uh, I felt it was a characteristic pose. The, the fact that she appears to be that way in, in a penultimate scene after the exorcism is, is just simply reflection a reflection of that's typical of her behavior.
0: shaking. I can't get to sleep, <laughs> Honey.
1: Well, when Chris goes up into the attic, it's because she hears these strange and, and disturbing noises. She thinks it's rats, but when she gets up in the attic, she sees that there are traps that have been set, but uh, there were no rats up there. The rats never went for the bait. So what are these strange noises or wrappings, as Blatty refers to them in the novel and in the screenplay? Clearly, it's the manifestation of the demon. And it is meant as an early in indication that the demonic spirit resides not only in Reagan, but in this house. An older house does seem to have you know, more history, and therefore more potential for either good vibrations or bad vibrations. That's a general notion. The fact is that nothing is meant to suggest that there is anything inherently evil in the house itself. There's nothing inherently evil in little Reagan or in her mother. The idea is that the devil chooses its, his victims at random in order to influence some of the rest of us. If you read the novel for the first time, you sort of become suspicious of Carl early on, that Carl has done something to perhaps summon up the demon. It's suggested later that Carl is the one who put the crucifix, the metal crucifix under Reagan's bed. Carl is a much uh, more important figure in the novel than he is in the film. And there is the suggestion throughout the novel, early on, that perhaps Carl might have been involved with certain mysterious Teutonic practices that brought about the existence of the demon. I didn't do much with that in the film.
0: So, in that sense,
1: it is a red herring, but I didn't want to eliminate Carl from the story.
0: Thanks a lot. That's terrific.
1: I, I don't think that anyone could really go inside a chapel like that and take, uh, have the time and take the trouble to, to desecrate a statue in that way. This is a peculiarity, I believe, of, of the evil that exists out there and that all evil is in some way related. If you look closely at the statue, you see that the fake breasts and the fake penis... Are made of clay, the same clay that Reagan has used to make her little uh, toys. So there is the suggestion that this was done by Reagan. But she is by no means in the story or in the film in an advanced enough state to have done this. <sighs> the edema affected her
0: brain. You understand me? She don't let my doctor come near her. She was all the time screaming, even talking to the radio. You should have called me the minute it happened. Listen, when you I go out
1: to film put up with an actual, actual so sequence involving real here, people, you really don't know the what they're going to we'll do. You haven't right staged out, you mean, it. You're just trying to, put to put follow the action like grabbing a tiger by the tail. I was able to induce the documentary style. Yes. And to a large extent, yes. I was able to do that by using real people in a lot of these cases so there is a sense that you're watching real human behavior throughout this film and not simply a performance this sequence was filmed in uh, Bellevue Hospital in a ward for the mentally ill and a few of the women are actresses but the majority of them are not They are uh, actually patients in the hospital who we got to participate with us and and perform, pretty much as themselves. I mean, I basically just let them do what they were doing in that hospital room on a daily basis. There's no suggestion that Karis's mother is mentally ill, but she's in a mental ward. And you see him becoming very upset when he's surrounded by The patients in this metal ward, one of whom steals his priest's collar. And this scene is all to add to his frustration for having neglected his own mother, which is one of the weaknesses that the demon plays upon later during the exorcism. A lot of things in the early section of the film prefigure things that turn up in later sections of the film. Why? The Why? fact Why? that Karis's uh, mother is strapped into a hospital bed does prefigure his initial meetings you, with Reagan when she too home. is strapped into her own bed. Karis, oh, on in, in seeing his mother in this condition, his guilt becomes much more profound and pronounced. And he realizes that by not being there for his mother, He has let her down. And what good is it for a priest to minister to the world if he can't take care of his own family? The people at the party are are largely people that we brought in from Georgetown who were members of Georgetown society that could afford to come up and work for a day. So I wanted a kind of an authentic look, which is very hard to get with, with screen extras. This is the famous shot right here that is referred to in the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas case. Burke Denning says, there seems to be an alien pubic hair in my gin, and that, that line became famous. It was actually read out of the novel by Senator Orrin Hatch at, a Senate, at the Senate Clarence Thomas hearing. He opened up a copy of Blatty's novel and read that line uh, from the book as a source for where Thomas might have said it to Tell Anita me, Hill.
0: Was it public relations you did for the Gestapo, what community relations? Yes, yes of You never went bowling with Goebbels either, I suppose, eh? Nazi bastard. Over behind the church, you know what I mean? Over there, it's a red... Bridge.
1: In the course of the party, Chris learns that Father Karras has lost his mother. But we also learn that Chris has noticed Father Karras. She's seen him in the street and something about him struck her enough to ask Father Dyer, who's at this party, who is that priest that she saw behind St. Michael's Parish? So that, again, prefigures that Chris has noticed Karis, and later she will become involved in a symbiotic way with Karras. Burke Dennings, the director, in the film within the film uh, was played by Jack McGowan who was one of the greatest actors on the Irish stage he had made very few films but he was an actor that Samuel Beckett used to write a lot of his plays for Burke Dennings was modeled after the film director named Jay Lee Thompson and Jay Lee Thompson directed a film with Shirley MacLaine uh, that Bill Blatty happened to write the screenplay for, and so he modeled the character of Burke after J. Lee Thompson. And I originally offered the role to J. Lee Thompson himself, and he said he would do it, but then he either got too busy with the project he was going to direct, or he probably didn't see himself in quite the way that Blatty saw him, as a satirical figure. I was very influenced at that time by the films of Michelangelo Antonioni, the great Italian uh, director. And the way Antonioni would tell a story almost laterally, in the sense that he would never usually repeat shots. It's very common to repeat shots in almost any film. You have a close-up of one person, a close-up of another person in the scene, a, a profile of both of them. And these shots are repeated uh, in a very uh, predictable pattern throughout the course of a scene and throughout the course of a movie. What Antonioni was able to do was tr- almost never repeat a shot. He would sometimes play an entire scene in one shot. And even within a scene, you would seldom have that the, the repetitious rhythm of one close-up, another close-up, I- I- in a way that was, had become, I felt, even at that time much more so today, highly predictable. This particular scene is really there as, a kind, as the kind of first shocking manifestation of something in Reagan's nature that would not normally be there. The only thing that precedes this, as unusual, are the kind of rappings that, that you hear, the rappings uh, in the ceiling. Uh, What what Chris refers to as rats in the attic, which are considerably more than rats as we will later find out
0: Mother, What's wrong with me It's just like the doctor said it's nerves and that's all Okay, you just take your pills and you'll be fine. Really. Okay?
1: I always tried to build in an extremely quiet scene before an extremely loud scene. In fact, there is a constant motif running through the film on a technical level of light and dark, uh, loud and soft, um, good and evil. So all of the scenes that have some kind of uh, demonic force to them, like the shaking of the bed, all of those scenes are preceded by very quiet scenes to set up the contrast when these particular demonic scenes hit they're extremely loud and percussive and violent the actor who plays father dyer is uh... not really an actor he's a, again a priest he's uh... reverend william o'malley s j and he too teaches at fordham university he was an acquaintance of uh, bill Blatty's, and uh... Bill introduced me to uh, Father O'Malley and told me that uh, when he met O'Malley, he had already written Father Dyer, but he seemed it seemed to him that O'Malley was uh, an almost perfect uh, example of Father Dyer. Uh, O'Malley was um, a model for Father Dyer while not having served as a model, and uh, they became friends, I guess... Uh, Bill met O'Malley through Father Birmingham and they became friends and Bill told me when I was casting the film that there's a guy who is Dyer even though he wasn't actually the model for Dyer. I met O'Malley in New York with Bill. We had dinner one night and I agreed with him that he was Dyer and he had a great personality and uh, so I auditioned him. I had him read for me and I thought he was perfect again you know he he has the soul of this character that he's playing i made up the dream sequence in the editing room a lot of, a lot of found objects in addition to uh, the repetition of some shots that you had already seen i was trying to show how the symbiosis can occur between two different people whose lives are inextricably tied together in ways that are are not clear to them as yet. It occurred to me to examine what are dreams made of in a symbiotic situation. So moments from Karras' dream about his mother's death and images of the demon mixed together with images that we saw in Iraq sort of tie together the two disparate worlds of Karis and Marin, in ways that are going to indicate that they later come together, that they're united in this exorcism. There, there was never a, any question of trying to uh, brainwash an audience by the use of the, this imagery. I felt that it had the irregular and unpredictable pace of a dream, uh, but I am aware of.
0: What can happen
1: when you're looking at two and three frame cuts of something? It does, in a way, become sort of unsettling.
0: But more importantly,
1: it causes the audience to pay attention more. So that's why those shortcuts are in there, even though I've read over the years that they were put there to, um, if anything, brainwash the audience, which is ludicrous. Well,
0: it's a symptom type of disturbance in the chemical-electrical activity of the brain. In the case of your daughter in the temporal lobe. It's up here, in the lateral part of the brain. Mm-hmm. It's rare, but it does cause bizarre hallucinations. And usually just before a convulsion. A convulsion? The shaking of the bed. That's doubtless due to muscular spasms. Oh, no. No, no. That was not spasm. Look, I got on the bed. The whole bed was thumping and rising off the floor and shaking. The whole thing. With me on it. Mrs. McNeil, the problem with your daughter is not her bed. It's her brain. So, um, what causes this... Lesion. Lesion in the temporal...
1: We had several casting directors who worked Uh, on The Exorcist in in various parts of the country, mostly to try and find a 12-year-old girl to play Reagan and literally hundreds of girls were seen and some of them were auditioned and uh, it was getting down to the wire and there was nobody. Then one day, Linda Blair was brought in by her mother. It turned out that Linda had never really acted before at all, except in school plays. When she first came to see me, I thought she was highly intelligent and sort of a really cute little kid. So I shot a test with Linda that amounted to no more than Ellen Burstyn interviewing her. And then the two of them sort of improvised uh, a a mother-daughter scene from early on in the script. And uh, immediately I saw the dailies, and I knew that we had found Reagan. There is a movie god that brings you people like that. When you least expect it, and from a, a completely unsuspected source, as I say, there were hundreds of, of young women auditioned before anyone had even seen or met Linda.
0: It's just for a short time.
1: I shot most of the doctor scenes in actual doctor's offices or at the nyu medical center at the neuropsychiatric center and where dr norman chase who was the head of that department was very helpful the audience reaction to this particular scene has always been the same it is the most disturbing scene in the exorcist it's the one that that puts most people off one of the reasons that it does is because it's portrayed so realistically it really looks like that needle is going into her neck and okay. into a, a, a vein and, no, and then into an artery. It's a combination of the way in which this doctor, who is an actual neurosurgeon, he's not an actor, and little Linda Blair was able to act this scene. It's absolutely brilliant what Linda does to to sell this. And then again, the special effects that make it look like the blood is spurting out of there also is very well done, so an audience looks at this and they believe it and they can feel that pain in her neck and they can when they hear her moaning most of the people moan right along with her there's no question that the film to one extent or another is uh, about ritual about religious ritual medical ritual so clearly there's a counterpoint between the two and they also dovetail. Exorcism is a ritual, and so is this medical routine. Something like the arteriogram is is very ritualistic in the way I saw it and presented it.
0: The nurse who appears
1: here in Dr. Tanny's office is actually Linda Blair's mother.
0: Got some
1: time? Of course. This could now be done with a steady cam. It was a very difficult and unusual shot at that time. We simply hoisted the camera operator up on a pulley and. Uh, he he was able to just pan around with the actors and do a 360-degree shot but carrying them from one floor to another. It looked seamless and effortless, and that was the idea. These sequences that involve all of this thrashing around by Linda, they were all tested for weeks with a stunt double before we actually did it with Linda. The length of time that she spent in this harness or rig was actually quite short. It's pretty much the length that you see on the screen. And I did very few takes of it. I had never did more than two takes, and I usually was able to achieve it in one take. And then, of course, she acted it so superbly. But it was done so quickly that uh, while, it, while it was uncomfortable, it wasn't long-lasting, and, and there was no, you know, physical difficulties to her. There was a lot of uh, stuff written about The Exorcist and behind the scenes in The Exorcist, and almost everybody who wrote about it knew very little, if anything, about it. It was being written that Linda Blair was physically affected by this role. Rona Barrett, who was a... Gossip columnist for the entertainment industry went on ABC television and said that Linda Blair was in a mental institution As a result of having played this part at the time that story appeared Linda was back in school a straight-a student uh, And a champion horsewoman Winning blue ribbons and prizes in horse shows uh, at Madison Square Garden and elsewhere The film provoked a lot of evil into a lot of its critics. It provoked a lot of um, incorrect information that was passed on to the public and sort of added to the dark legend that the film contains to this day. And I would have to say that most of the stories that I saw,
0: if not all of them, were completely made up out of whole cloth.
1: Almost every other horror film that has ever been made has a distance between the viewer and the filmmakers. You know you're watching a horror film. You know it by the way it's lit, by the way the angles are chosen, by the performances, by the outrageous nature of the action line. The Exorcist, I wanted it to be completely believable in every frame. And so a lot of care and attention was given to make all of the details as good as we possibly, possibly could and as plausible as we could possibly make them. At least
0: would eliminate certain other possibilities.
1: A number of the sound transitions came about in the editing process through trial and error, but most of them were preconceived. I mean, I knew that I wanted the sounds, the percussive noises that take place in this arteriogram sequence to echo. The sound that's pounding in Father Marin's brain while he's sitting at a chaikana or a little uh, tea restaurant in Iraq. No. So, yes, that was calculated. But the way I we did. actually achieved it sure? came about through well, trial and error. Sure. And, of course, again, every one of these loud scenes oh, is immediately followed by a completely silent soundtrack. Everything in the Exorcist I film is also- intentional. I had no idea what the effect of any of this stuff would be, but I can tell you that it's all planned. This is as planned a film as I've ever made. There are a lot of things in almost every film that come about through improvisation or through luck. A large part of the chase scene in The French Connection, it actually just happened. But uh, there's nothing that just happened in The Exorcist. Everything is planned.
0: Why'd you ask? I think it's time we started looking for a psychiatrist.
1: At this particular point in the film, Chris McNeil is becoming physically and mentally sick from what's going on with her daughter. And, of course, rather than comb and brush her hair, she decides to, to cover it with a shawl instead. And you begin to get a sense that she's letting herself go; that her appearance is less important to her, uh, physically and physiologically. And you begin to see the toll that her daughter's illness is taking on her. Her attitude gets a lot sharper too. Her her mentality becomes uh, much more sure. difficult to deal with, and f- she and she really. Becomes a kind of a mean person as a result of what's happening to her. The meanness comes out of the insecurity and the uncertainty as to what is the cause of her daughter's illness. This area here, of course, has no subliminal imagery. You could have. I mean, the temptation here is to hide little demons in the darkness here. And probably if they were making the film today, that's what they would do, is to pump it up. But I tried to hold on to realism as long as I could. By this time, a little realism has gone a long way, and not only our characters, but the audience is looking beyond it for some other kind of solution.
0: What do you mean, going off and leaving Reagan by yourself? Are you crazy or window's wide open? The whole room is freezing. Didn't he tell you? Didn't who tell me. Burke isn't... What's Burke got to do with it? Look, There wasn't anybody here, so when I went to get the Thorazine, I had him stay with her and... Oh. I should have known better. I'm sorry. Well, I guess you should have. How are the tests? We have to start looking for a shrink. Hi, Chuck. Come on in.
1: There are very oh, few opticals in the picture. Heard what? There's a fade-out coming at the end of this scene. There are a couple of dissolves. There's an occasional Brooke's fade to dead. black. I tried not to use any dissolves or fades, but to
0: drunk.
1: move quickly from one scene to ancestry,
0: another.
1: In straight cuts, as we say. Oh, God. Without any I real don't. manipulation no. of the audience. Even though the film does seem to have an interesting pace, it's probably yeah. very slow for today's audience in terms of what they're used to seeing. Today's audience is not used to seeing so much characterization before anything happens. They usually want the spills and chills in the first reel. We don't give them that. What we give them instead is a very slow development with an extremely creepy atmosphere leading up to the potentiality that something astounding is going to happen, and then it does. I would hope that this style can return and that the story becomes more important. I'm not sure that it has or that it will. I think there's been a a, a significant uh, lowering of the standards of film storytelling. And I find most of the screen directors working against the material rather than with it, as any intelligent person would do if confronted with a lot of this stuff which is totally superficial
0: I'm speaking to the person inside of Reagan now if you are there you too are hypnotized I must answer all my questions come forward and answer me now <laughs> <sighs>
1: You hear a combination of her voice along with the demon voice. And that's because the demon has not completely taken her over. There's still something left of her personality at this point. Not much, but something. And so you hear very clearly the demon voice, and then you also hear her own voice very clearly. Uh, Later on, her own voice is completely usurped by the demon voice. Jason Miller is probably the most unusual casting in the film. He had never been in a film before. He had written a play. It was his first uh, produced play. It was called That Championship Season, and it subsequently won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. I, I had seen the play when it was in previews at the public theater while I was casting The Exorcist. And I thought that there was an aura of failed Catholicism it came right off the stage an extreme intelligence uh, a kind of uh, ironic cynicism about, the, about the world a brilliance of course but also a sort of mustiness
0: have we met?
1: i um saw the was oh, very moved by it I and i asked like my casting director if she knew the guy who We're wrote this play and she said no How i know who he is and she told this me something Walmart. about him. At the time, uh, I think he was delivering milk boxers. in uh, in like Queens or something. And so I said, I'd like so to meet this guy, exactly just to talk John to him. Anyway, I met that. with Jason in my hotel room in the New York at you, you time. Like We Paul, had a very bad Paul. meeting. Uh, he was sort of uh, uptight. He didn't know why I wanted to see him. He had not read The Exorcist. Well, you know this director uh, and and that's this how it started. And I was not very impressed with him. I thought he was had no verbal skills whatsoever. He was kind of off-putting.
0: But he told me, in
1: fact, that he had studied for the priesthood, that he went to Catholic University for three years, and he sort of dropped out. He was unable to to see it through, and that, of course, was the quality inherent in Father Karras. Anyway, I went back to California, and we cast another actor to play Father Karras. We actually had a deal with another rather well-known actor at that time. Even though I wanted an unknown actor for that role, because I didn't want people to see an actor who they were familiar with wearing a priest collar. We cast this other actor, and one day I got a call from Jason Miller. I was in California. He was in New York. Confidential. About a week or so after our meeting. And he said... You know, I've read that book now. I read The Exorcist. I hadn't read it when we talked. And he said, I think it's really great. And he said, and I am this guy. I'm telling you, I am this character. I said, well, Jason, you know, I appreciate that, but we've cast someone else. And he said, no, you've got to to screen test me. He said, would you give me a screen test? I said, what's the point of that? We have another actor cast. He said, no, you've got to do this. Anyway, I, his play had become quite successful, hand, black, and uh, uh, received wonderful criticism. And, and out of respect for him, I, I said, "Okay, you get out here in the Maybe next two days, and I'll I'll do a screen good. test with you." He said, "I can't church. get there in two days. He said, I don't Uncance fly." "You don't fly?" I said, "How are you going to get here?" He said, "Well, well I'll take a train." Please. I said, "That'll take you four Uncance. days." He said, "I know, but..." you got to wait for me and you got I waited for him I arranged a screen test again involving Ellen Burstyn who again interviewed Jason the way she did Linda and we improvised that scene and then I shot a tight close up of Jason just saying the mass in a tight close up the way he says it in the film in a very uh, Deeply felt way where he was discovering the meaning of the words for the first time was the direction that I had given. I, I didn't know whether it was going to come off or not until the next day when I saw the rushes, and it was amazing. The camera loved this guy. He had a, so, a voice quality and a look that was perfect for Father Karras, and of course, I knew that he had basically the same spiritual conflict so i then took the bold step of paying off the other actor i got warner brothers who now had ellen burston that they didn't want in the lead to now pay off another actor who they did want to go ahead and put this untried young, young playwright who had never appeared in a motion picture or had any leading role anywhere to give him the lead as father caris in the movie again it was the movie god that sent us jason miller because no, to this day, manager. I can't imagine I any other actor doing this role as well as he
0: did. You know who I think really did not Who? The Dominicans go pick on them. I could have you deported, you know that? I lied. You look like Sal Mineo.
1: When I started to think about the music for The Exorcist, I felt I did not want anything that was going to be predictable, like a church organ, or like liturgical music in any way. Neither did I want highly dramatic music that generally in a film either overwhelms a sequence or tells the audience what the sequence is about and how they should feel about it. I wanted the music to work in the film more or less like like a cold hand on the back of someone's neck in other words tones and textures and just a little feeling to help instill the irrational fear that had to run through the entire film so I chose excerpts of a number of pieces of contemporary classical music by composers like George Crumb and uh, Hans-Werner Hense and Krzysztof Penderecki and blended them together in kind of an original score
0: that is, for the most
1: part, completely understated. Jack Nietzsche came in after the fact to try and do some linking sounds that I wasn't able to locate on the recordings of these classical composers. So Jack came in and did some simple little things like rubbing crystal glass and creating simple sound textures that sort of uh, augmented the other excerpts that I used in the film. He did these little excerpts so seamlessly that it's hard not to believe that that score wasn't wasn't written for the film. But the score is made up of a lot of found Uh, objects linked together by Nietzsche's kind of uh, incidental music. And and Nietzsche did not use any traditional instruments. He created musical tones and textures by rubbing glass. I wanted a little motif that was both melodic and would serve as a kind of almost nursery rhyme. Brahms' lullaby was what came to mind, and at one time I was going to use Brahms' lullaby. Beyond that, I couldn't verbalize what I was looking for. But I told Larry Marks, again, the music director of Warner's, what I was looking for, and he said, look, I don't know where you're gonna find anything like that, but why don't you go into my office? There's a whole bunch of records in there. He said, go in there and just listen to a bunch of stuff and see if there's anything you like. One of the demos I picked up was Tubular Bells. It's by a guy named Mike Oldfield. I put on Tubular Bells, and there was exactly what I was looking for. Uh, To this day, I have never met nor spoken to Mike Oldfield or anyone connected with the recording, but I found it on, on this pile of demos in Larry Mark's office. That was exactly what I wanted, and I gave it to Larry, and I said, let's get this. Of course, the original recording of Tubular Bells is much longer, and it goes into a narration. It goes into Mike Oldfield talking about and describing the effects of different tubular bells. So I just used the melodic excerpt that I wanted, that's right at the beginning of the record, and cut out of it at the place where Oldfield starts talking. And that's what you hear in the film. Richard Branson, who owns Virgin Records, wrote his autobiography recently and talks about how it was that piece of music that put them on the map. It was their first million-seller.
0: I really don't know who
1: put the crucifix under Reagan's pillow. The implication is that it was Carl. Probably it was Carl. Or his wife, who is uh, sort of Uh, um, on the brink of religious fanaticism, Mm -hmm. shall we say. Superstition. I think in the book, Blatty specifies that indeed it was Carl. But I saw no real need to go deeper into the question here. In Blatty's novel... There, it, it is something of a detective mystery. Uh, not simply uh, Kinderman's trying underrated. to find out no. uh, what's going on with I Reagan McNeil, I but put it. Chris's attempt to f- learn Excuse me, madam. What? about some of these strange details that are a going on in her problem. house.
0: What man? Might your daughter remember. Perhaps if Mr. Dennings was in her room that
1: night. Lee J. Cobb was a consummate pro, a great actor, distinguished actor. He had created the role of Willie Loman on on Broadway in Death of a Salesman. He played Johnny Friendly in one of the greatest American films ever made called On the Waterfront. And in general, he had put up a a gallery of tremendous performances and lee himself was a truly sensational actor as i said earlier i wanted a combination of unknowns mixed together with seasoned professionals and there was no more seasoned professional than lee j cobb as good as he was at bombast his role here in the exorcist is one of the most understated and beautifully orchestrated that i've ever seen in a film speaking plainly mrs McNeil, it isn't
0: likely he would fall from a window besides a fall wouldn't do to his neck what
1: this particular
0: scene one is chance in a thousand. my
1: favorite scene no, in the film my hunch, i can my watch it over and over again opinion it's done so delicately and so subtly the camera technique is is very unobtrusive
0: and the, the camera is
1: keeps moving into both kinderman and chris at a very slow pace very sort of trying to get closer and closer probable, to what both of them certain. have in mind and then at a certain point deceased, once kinderman has kind of uh, let all of his cards show and we the audience are aware orders, of where he's heading with this discussion the camera starts to pull away from the two of them slowly it could be one so they're way, matching shots that move in, in at the same time, time and pull so back at the same time
0: return.
1: and so while i think it works very well technically in a very simple way i think it's also um, just brilliantly performed thing. by these two actors this is a scene that you could show a to a class really of acting secret. students you're dealing with two of the very best actors of the world at that time would you like to ask him? and as i say i really love this scene no, 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 no. i can watch it over and over again because i think it's so brilliantly it's performed and i also think it's oh, it's brilliantly buy. written i think it's the best writing that bladdy has in his um, excellent screenplay
0: would you like some more coffee please
1: I don't think there was any point in going any further with the either the medical examination or in the uh, detective's examination of what might actually be happening. It's all clearly suggested here, and the rest is left to the audience. Presumably, when Kinderman leaves this house, he goes back and reflects on what he's learned, and perhaps he analyzes what he thinks is evidence found at the scene of the crime. But I didn't feel like any of that was necessary
0: daughter,
1: after you understand that, as I think you I do think here, that, yes, he suspects that Reagan McNeil is a suspect in this murder. You might ask you but know, what are you going to do with that? How far can you go with that? Theoretically and technically,
0: he, he wouldn't have any reason could
1: Reagan herself him. be prosecuted for Denning's I murder? Realized, It was Reagan who, in fact, murdered Dennings, but under the influence of a demonic possession. Now, I don't know of any actual instance where a person who was possessed by a demon and committed some outrageous acts ever put that up as a defense. I think they'd probably be laughed out of a
0: courtroom if they did. Please give an autograph. Of course. Oh, where's the pencil? Right here. Oh, I think
1: Columbo is probably ripped off from this character. Because this character came first. Kinderman came before Columbo. And I think Peter Falk, I'm not saying he stole anything, but his characterization owes a lot um, to Lee J. Cobb's performance as Kinderman. But Cobb created this guy out of whole cloth From what he had read in Blatty's fiction, I mean, it was Blatty who actually created Kinderman, You're but Cobb nice who brought him to lady. life. And he is easily one of the greatest American actors. Thank so you. it's an honor to have worked with him and to well, have him in this I'll picture. Come back
0: when she's feeling better.
1: Here again, you have one of those extremely slow and quiet moments that precede what is to come, which is very fast and noisy and disturbing. This has orchestrated this sequence in the next very much like a Shostakovich symphony where extremely quiet passages precede noisy and bombastic ones. Perhaps the image of a little girl masturbating with the crucifix uh, is one of the most shocking in film history, I would say, as you bring together in one frame two extremely disparate elements that are never seen together in, in anyone's conscious mind, and that's the crucifix and the vagina. And yes, it is a, a kind of a blasphemous image, but we decided early on to retain it because This is what it means to be demonically possessed. There's the crucifix that represents something, and there's the vagina that represents something else. They are at opposite ends of the mode of consciousness that people have. And it also brings together, in a much deeper sense, the sexuality that is behind much of Catholic mythology. The next few minutes of this Chris picture uh, truly represent, I, no think, I think, screen acting house. at its very best and Burstyn at her okay. very best. There's no doubt right. in your mind while you're enough. watching it yeah. that, you, that you are watching an anguished mother who has no idea what's happening with her daughter. The scene is beautifully written. It's very delicate. It's It turns out to be very emotional. Uh, again, it's another highlight for me—the way these two actors play this scene, and the simple manner in which cool. we photographed it and let it yeah. speak for itself, with with no dramatic uh, angles, no no need to to try and so pump up the impressed. moment, it's no struggle now, against the material. We just let them play cool. it s- as cool. simply and as truthfully as possible. Harvard, Bellevue, Johns
0: Hopkins, places like that. I see. Your friend Father Dyers, right? Yes, I am. Pretty close. I rehearsed close. for
1: two weeks before we ever started shooting. That's I honestly great. feel I think we rehearsed for three not weeks, as a matter of fact, but it was oh, ready man. to go after a week. The actors had hit such a uh, high point in the first week of rehearsal that I really felt I should have, have shut off rehearsals after a week. I mention. thought it was not going to be fresh anymore. And then, So then I had to surprise them, of course, on the locations to make the performances fresh.
0: The as,
1: a, as a matter of fact, since The Exorcist, I have felt that too much rehearsal I mean, is really not very good because it tends uh, to affect you know, the spontaneity of the scene. And I, I love and it they, to appear that the
0: actors are speaking these words for the first him. time. Would you have to turn him in? Well, if he came to me for special advice, I'd say no. You wouldn't? No, I wouldn't. But I would try to convince him to turn himself in. Uh-huh. And uh, how do you go about getting an exorcism? We didn't
1: really shoot in continuity. We had to shoot everything that we were going to film in Georgetown, all of the exteriors and even some interiors that were done in Georgetown. You know, they were all done together. By, uh, demon then we had a soundstage in New York where we filmed the, well, the McNeil house, which was uh, built on a on a set it was a two-story house uh, with additional rooms on a soundstage on the west side of Manhattan there were some other shots around New York such as uh, a scene at Fordham University and uh, some doctors offices were also in New York all of those scenes were filmed together everything that had to be done in New York was filmed at one time and then finally we filmed the opening in Iraq which opens the film, that was the last thing to be filmed. I tried to make the film with as much realism as possible, even though it's a realistic film about inexplicable things. Of course, I always felt that there would be certain elements that a lot of people would just not be willing to suspend disbelief over. And so it became a challenge to get the audience to suspend disbelief, to get non-Catholics who had almost no introduction at all to the Roman ritual of exorcism to believe that this sort of thing could take place. That meant, of course, a realistic level of performance by all the actors. There could be no hamminess. There couldn't be a hair out of place. There could be nowhere where you would feel someone was acting instead of really feeling passionately about their role. It meant that all of the special effects had a look as real to the eye as as possible because there was no way to fix them later with optical equipment. So, of course, it took longer to do all of that. But I felt it was necessary. It wants no straps. Dick Smith was... The very best makeup artist working at that time. He's now the dean of all makeup artists. There was never any second choice. If we didn't get Dick Smith, I didn't know who we were going to get to create this makeup. Hello, Reagan. It was a period of months of uh, pre production to try and establish mother, the I'd demonic like look. And I don't know, right, Dick must have showed straffed. me a half a dozen or more different approaches, approaches, all radically different. And it seemed to me that. What I was allowing to happen was letting Dick do a kind of monster makeup look. And when I saw it, it was, of course, brilliant, but it had nothing organically to do, I felt, with her character. And as I was looking at Dick's makeup tests, I realized that what happened to the little girl demonically has to come from within the story itself. What do I mean by that? I mean that, for example, there's an early scene that shows her masturbating with a crucifix, cutting herself with a sharp-edged metallic crucifix. And I decided to suggest that she had cut her face as well and that the distorted makeup and scarring was going to come from what she had done to herself and that this scarring would get worse during the course of the film. That gangrene would set in, that her face would become not only scarred, but discolored. And once I came up with that idea, Dick then went out and he got a lot of photographs of burn victims, victims of, uh, of, of facial damage, all from medical research books. And we then came up with this approach that whatever had happened to cause the appearance of a, of a beautiful and healthy 12-year-old girl to become a, a demonic monster was going to grow out of self-inflicted wounds that get worse and worse as the film progresses. And then, of course, we decided we could take certain liberties with that. We felt it was better if her eyes became discolored. And then Dick matted her hair so it looked like her hair hadn't been washed for a long time and was dirty. And we built upon that concept. Thank you. It's in this scene that Karras is speaking for the the rational side of of the church, which in modern times does try to underplay the idea of exorcism. Now that we have psychiatry and now that we understand more about the chemical like makeup of the human brain know, so. and what a delicate balance it is and how other know. solutions are sought to to, to explain extreme behavior expert. or mental illness. Karras has now seen Reagan and seen her condition, but he still doesn't think there's enough in her behavior to justify an exorcism. And he tries to talk
0: Chris out of seeking an exorcism. You asked
1: me well there is a great reluctance on the part the of any priest to admit that what they're looking at with a, an extremely sick child is demonic possession That is a certainly Same a face. conclusion of last resort. Everything. It must be, yeah. it should be and it is.
0: Known my
1: gut. And Karis goes through um, I'm telling you
0: that that thing a lot
1: of inner struggle before he reaches the conclusion
0: that, that Reagan is that possibly wrong with my possessed. Daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good! You tell me that!
1: If there is any rhyme or reason to Reagan's possession, it's to test Karis's faith. It's after all Karis who has to over. become convinced that Reagan is possessed no. by a demon you know before he can seek church approval. Yes, I did. I'm very sorry. No. There is the sense that the demonic possession work? of Reagan is a way not of enough. testing Karis. And if the demon wins, then Karis will be pushed out of the church. It's not important, and every time God loses a faithful follower, the devil wins.
0: gave it to his disciples and said, Take this, all of you, and eat it. For this is my body. When the supper was ended, he took the cup. Again he gave you thanks and praise. Gave the cup to his disciples and said, Take this. All of you and drink from it. This is the cup of my blood. The blood of the new and everlasting covenant, the mystery of faith. What an excellent day for an excellent. I did a lot of
1: experimentation before we came up with the demon voice and the demon sound effects that you hear. Again, it was trial and error. Originally, I, I had a... A brilliant man named Ken Nordine that I contacted to uh, experiment with with his own voice played through one of the early computers that were around then, and Ken did some experimentation, and it was absolutely brilliant, Ah. but it always sounded like a man's voice dubbed into a little girl's. I didn't want that. I I wanted something that was far more... Neutral. I mean, it had to be disturbing, but it couldn't sound like a man. I realized that. And that's about all I realized at the time. But in thinking about it, it occurred to me that the voice, the demon voice, should be more neutral than either male or female. What is neutral? Well, it flashed into my mind that there was such a person with a neutral voice that I remembered from my childhood from dramatic radio. What's that? And that was Mercedes McCambridge. And I had no idea where she was or if she was still around or still working. So I asked my producer, David Salvin, to see if he could locate Mercedes McCambridge. And he did. She was doing a play in Dallas. And I phoned her and told her what uh, I had in mind. And she had a few more weeks left on her play, but she agreed to fly to los angeles afterward and meet with me and we did i ran the film for her and then we went into a sound stage at warner brothers and for about three weeks we experimented with her voice in terms of how to bring about this the sound of the demon and of course later on i added a number of artificial effects to her voice i added the sound of uh, an actual exorcism the, the torture of an actual young boy who was possessed in an exorcism that took place in Rome that had been um, sent to me. I added that. I added some various animal noises. But for the most part, it's Mercedes McCambridge acting it out on a microphone for eight hours a day over a period of about three weeks. And I really tortured her I must say to bring about this sound no, I, just, I had her really, strapped to a chair just, with the straps real tight no, no, she was smoking three no. packs of cigarettes a day after she had quit smoking in order to affect her sound and in addition to the cigarettes she was swallowing raw eggs and drinking straight whiskey and this procedure was of course very tricky for her it's not drink? something i would please. advise anyone else to do, do but we really sort of uh, tortured that sound out of her throat
0: nice. she had an
1: interesting or... quality to begin okay. with but we distorted it even further by some of the techniques i've just
0: mentioned to you oh, ice. i'll get some from the kitchen no it's all right i'll take it straight it's fine no that's fine please sit mm-hmm. yes sure? sit Owen
1: Roisman and I started working together on the French Connection. When I went back to New York to film French Connection, I really wanted to try and find a new young cameraman uh, rather than some of the established guys who were working there, some of whom I'd worked with in the past on the Boys in the Band and the night they raided Minsky's. A good friend of mine at the time was a man named Dick DeBona, who ran a general camera where we always would rent our camera and lighting equipment. And Dick was a a good guy and a friend of mine. And I remember asking Dick if he could recommend any of the newer young cameramen. He recommended Owen and he said, let me set up a lunch for you with this guy. He's never really done a feature, but he's done a lot of commercials and they're very good. And he has a unique kind of vision and he's a young guy, he's 31 years old. And he arranged a lunch in his office uh, at General Canada for Owen and myself and, and him. And he cooked the lunch. He's a very good Italian cook. And he made us a lunch, and I met with Owen, and I liked him. We spoke for a while. I told him the style of French Connection that I wanted, a total documentary realism using a lot of natural light and handheld portable equipment. And Owen said, I love that. I think that's a great idea. And I said, well, fine, let's go. You got the movie. I told him right at that meeting. He said, well, don't you want to see any of my films and my commercials? And I said, no, I don't need to see anything. I trust you, and we agree on the approach. And uh, as long as you follow through with that approach, you're going to shoot the picture. So we made the French connection together that way, and he had a wonderful crew. And uh, obviously the results, I think, were excellent. And so a year later, when I came around to, to doing The Exorcist, I called him again and uh, asked Owen to light The Exorcist. And, of course, the problem there was completely different from the French Connection. The Exorcist had to be carefully lit. The lighting had to be extremely controlled. Uh, and except for the exteriors, the interiors had to have mood and the mood had to be totally created because it was all on a sound stage. Which is at the one hand an, an advantage for a cinematographer in that he gets to start from scratch. He doesn't have to live with the lighting that exists in a real location. But on the other hand, it's more time consuming and much more of a, of a challenge. Ultimately, I thought that working in those two modes from the documentary realism of the French Connection to the much more controlled and atmospheric lighting of The Exorcist that Owen had done a really brilliant job. The Exorcist took us a lot longer to film. The French Connection was filmed in 40 days. The Exorcist took over six months working every day, over a hundred days of filming. The experience of both films was completely different and brought about a lot of tensions between us because Owen worked very quickly on The French Connection and very slowly on The Exorcist. He worked slowly and methodically and properly and, of course, probably as important as anything else toward the impact of the film is the mood created and enhanced by Owen's
0: lighting. No, not really, I suppose. But I have made a prudent judgment that it meets the conditions set down in the ritual. You would want to do the exorcism yourself? Yes. Might be best to have a man of experience, maybe someone who spent time in foreign missions... The location uh, of
1: the scenes between the two priests who are discussing... exorcism between Father Karras and his superior and then again between uh, Father Birmingham uh, here who's again talking to the president of the university. Both of these scenes were filmed in the president's office at Georgetown. That was the office of and conference room of Father Healy who was at that time president of Georgetown. This is not a set that's actually his office. Georgetown is where the files of the actual case are kept,
0: and Father Healy
1: was the man who gave me access to those files before I started the film, Uh, and he gave us permission to film at
0: Georgetown. He's still running around digging up tombs. Mm. Besides, he's had experience. I didn't know that. Ten, twelve years ago, I think, in Africa. The exorcism supposedly lasted months. I heard it damn near killed him. Father?
1: Marin doesn't need to open the telegram. He knows what it says. He knows that this is the call that he's been waiting for. His realization that he's now being summoned to an ultimate confrontation with the demon. And while that's going on, the demon in, in her own mind's eye is beginning to become conscious that Marin is coming. This is the shot that became the ad for the film. I got the visual idea for this shot from a painting that I saw in the Metropolitan Museum of New York. It's by Rene Magritte, and the painting is called Empire of Light. This is not a direct copy of that painting, but it, is, uh, it does give the suggestion of a supernatural kind of thing that's occurring on a totally realistic street.
0: It's an honor to meet you, Father.
1: The exorcism scene, of course, was one of the last things filmed in New York, and Vonsito was there uh, for all of that, and I think it wound up being... He he might have been there for six weeks, more or less, to just do the one final, you know, 12, 13-minute sequence. It did go over schedule. Yes,
0: it did go over schedule. Especially important is the warning to avoid conversations with the demon. We may ask what is relevant, but anything beyond that is dangerous. He's a liar. The demon is a liar. He will like to confuse us.
1: The instructions that Marin gives to Karas here about don't pay attention the to the demon, don't listen to the, the demon. The demon is a liar. He will lie Attackers to confuse us. Demons. But he will also mix lies with Powerful. the truth. Uh, so all of that is part of the advice that uh, an older priest would give to a younger priest who's assisting him before the rite of
0: exorcism is performed. There is only one.
1: Of course, the battle of good and evil is fought on a daily basis, on a minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour basis, everywhere in the world at some point. And, the, and I think the genius of Bill Blatty's creation is that he took this battle of good and evil and he put it in the second floor bedroom of a real little girl who is possessed by a demon. This is not a huge battlefield. You know, This is not armies of tens of thousands of people killing one another and attacking one another these are two men and a little girl and a rite a ritual that's thousands of years old and the setting is one that we all recognize that we all know of a child's bedroom where the battle of good and evil is being played out by this point of course everyone in the audience and everyone in this film Every character in the story is convinced that this is demonic possession, and the only possible antidote to it is um, exorcism. And it's at this point that the actual Roman ritual of exorcism, which still exists in the Roman ritual, is becomes the dialogue. The exorcism is the rite of exorcism that is in the Roman ritual to this day not often performed anymore in the United States, although it is performed in many other countries. But uh, we, we go from Laddie's fictional screenplay right into the factual Roman ritual for this sequence. Now, uh, this is the kind of effect where you see the breath showing in the room that would be done today uh, on a computer. It would be done as a computer-generated optical and be just as effective as what you see in our film. But computer-generated opticals didn't exist at the time we filmed The Exorcist. So in order to get that breath in the room, we had to literally refrigerate the room to below freezing every day that we needed these kind of shots. It's also very difficult just to photograph breath, especially in a dark room, but even in a light room. And unless you backlight or side light or under light the breath, it won't show up on film. If you just front light people's faces, that breath would not show in the room. Each uh, person's breath needed its own little side light in order to be filmed. I never use storyboards, really. I I simply describe to everyone on the crew what I hope to accomplish. We then experiment with it using a lot of trial and error before we arrive at something that I think works, and then we we film it. But I don't draw it out so much as I have to conceive of it in my mind's eye. I have to think of all these cuts, how they'll work together, and then I go out and, and film them usually in sequence, within a sequence. In other words, the the entire film was not shot in sequence from beginning to end, but inside of each particular scene, everything in that scene is generally shot from beginning to end, so that you're not um, straying too far from continuity. Of the, Lord. Oh Lord, the exorcism that was sent to me from the Vatican was an authentic case of possession and what you hear on this rather poorly recorded tape is a sound of agony that is so profound and so disturbing that it's unimaginable that it, it could have been acted or faked. And it it moved me so much that I mixed it into the soundtrack when the demon
0: is in agony.
1: Here, the idea of reality is almost completely abandoned. I say almost completely. From time to time, you see a cut of the little girl suffering as a little girl and in pain, and at other times it's the demon in pain, and at the other times it's the demon laughing at this situation and mocking Marin and Karras. But the little supernatural effects in here, of the ceiling cracking, the plasma bottle crashing to the floor, the door splitting, uh, all of these effects were, of course, written and planned. And all of them are things that have taken place in the reportage that has accompanied all of the modern-day exorcisms. All of this uh, carnage has been witnessed by someone who attended one of these exorcisms. I had a technical advisor, Reverend John Nicola, who had written the definitive Catholic text on exorcism. And he was on the set with me every day that we filmed this sequence, giving me the, the courage to do it with a straight face, you know, and to not think I was going over the top with any of it. I command you, by the judge of the living and the dead, to depart from the servant of God. I really believe that the technical aspects of this are not only secondary, but unimportant. How any of this was done is not as important as what is being done. And so I have a great reluctance to discuss the way in which we were able to achieve these shots, because because it's not about how we achieve the shots; it's about what we're trying to achieve. This idea of uh, the priests repeating the phrase, "The power of Christ compels you," they were they say it over and over again, several times. That was something that. Uh, I heard on a tape that was sent to me by a priest from the Vatican in Rome at an actual exorcism that was being performed in Latin, and the phrase was repeated over and over again. And I asked Father Nicola, why was that phrase being repeated? And he said, because it seemed to be effective in quelling the demon. And so the priests repeated the phrase over and over again. It seemed to be having its desired effect. So I, I put that in. That was not in, in the original God screenplay. I also used the sound of the demonically possessed boy Just the on that Vatican tape, mixed in from time to time with Mercedes God McCambridge Voice.
0: God the Son commands you. God the Holy Spirit commands you. The, cross commands you. the blood of the martyrs commands you.
1: The uh, shot of the demon Pazuzu appearing here in uh, Reagan's room is something I added to the mix. We had just recently gotten this statue returned from Iraq, and when it came back, I looked at it. I had it in the studio, and I kept looking at it, and I thought, It might be interesting to put this figure into the room in this way at this time. And I shot it very experimentally without really knowing how to get into it or get out of it. And at one point I was going to take it out. I thought, this is way over the top. Blatty looked at it and he said, no, that's good. Let's keep that. That really works. Reagan's bedroom was actually built twice. We actually built it so that it was where it was supposed to be, on the second floor of the house. We then made a duplicate bedroom, which was off to one side of the stage, which we refrigerated with four large air conditioning units over the top of the set, which, when we turned them on at night, by the time we came in the following morning to film, the temperature of the set would be down to approximately 30 degrees below zero. And then once the movie Lights went on, the temperature would, of course, rise. We'd be able to film maybe for a couple of hours before the lights brought the temperature of the room back up, and we'd have to shut down, stop filming, and build up the cold again. Now, there's a moment of reflection where Karras is really trying to put together, and I hope the audience at this point is trying to put together what all of this could mean. He's reflecting on the idea that if there is a force of evil in the world that he can see and that he's been dealing with, there must also be a force for good to combat it. father Marin goes into the bathroom having heart pains to take another of his nitroglycerin pills before he goes to do battle for the last time with the demon Karis goes back into the room while Marin is um, struggling to suppress his heart failure and what Karis sees on the bed is an apparition of ...of his dead mother, and so the, the games that the demon is playing with him are, have now been, uh, the stakes have been raised. The demon is now trying to reach and destroy Karis through his guilt over his mother's death. And when Father Marin observes that, when he observes that the demon is getting to Karis through his guilt... ...Marin has to order Karis to leave the room. It's also at this point that Karis begins to see
0: to that little
1: Reagan's heart is failing as well.
0: Please, the Demi, demon is
1: on the verge of killing Reagan. You have to mother. bear in mind in this sequence Demi, that they are please. doing battle with a demon that has inhabited the body of a 12-year-old girl. And it's still the body of a 12-year-old girl, even though possessed by the demon.
0: What is it? Her heart.
1: I know that something? Marin and Karis come together because Marin is a man of deep faith. His faith has been tested many times. Karis is a man whose faith has been found wanting. And so you have these two interesting and powerful personalities coming together from sort of opposite spectrums of religious belief and it's the two of them that combine forces to do battle against the demon and of course the only thing that can defeat the demon is faith this is a story about the mystery of faith at this point we're not looking at a horror film you're not supposed to be conscious of these effects At this point, it is the battle of good and evil in in the bedroom of a 12-year-old girl. The entire movie is about premonition. It starts with the premonition of Merrin's that uh, he will one day encounter this demon again. That's what the Iraqi sequence is about. But at this point in Merrin's life, of course, he knows that physically he doesn't have enough left. He may not have enough left to prevail. Marin dies in the course of this exorcism, and it's Karis who has to carry it out in his absence, and Karras becomes the ultimate exorcist. I remember telling Max von Sydow that he should have a premonition that this will be the last act as that in making this sign of the cross over the demon, he is in effect delivering the last rites for himself as well. That was the direction that I gave to Mox. He's calm about it. He's living with heart failure. He's approaching a heart attack, and yet he calmly proceeds to die in a selfless action Prepared to meet his maker for whatever lies ahead. Karis waits downstairs, having been excluded from this final moment, when Chris appears to him and asks him if her child is going to die. Is it over? Karis firmly and finally says no. And he goes back upstairs because he realizes that the most important thing he can now do with his life is make sure that that child does not die. No. And so he goes back upstairs expecting to assist Father Marin, and instead he finds Marin dead. The appearance of Kinderman at that moment is meant to bring the audience back to, back out of the supernatural world into a certain world of reality where the little girl is the subject of a murder investigation. The appearance of the law here, of the police, of the voice of reason is meant to suggest that there's a lot more at stake for this little girl and her mother than whatever the supernatural events that are occurring upstairs. But it's the death of Marin and the demon's mocking of his death that causes Karis to attempt to physically drive the demon out of Reagan. And this is perhaps the most controversial moment of the film, when Karis grabs the little girl off the bed and begins to literally pound the devil out of her. He pounds the devil out of her. He beckons the demon to come into him. And it's remarkable how audiences have been able to separate the idea that he's not choking a 12-year-old girl, that he's not become physical with a little child, but with what that child has become, a possession of the devil and Karras manages to exhort the demon to leave Reagan and enter him. Reagan tears off his St. Christopher medal, the talisman that predicted all of this, and Karis, now possessed himself, realizing that he is now with the demon and could kill Reagan at this moment, instead decides to, in a momentary act of self-sacrifice, ...to take the demon with him out the window into his death. The demon has left Karras, and Karras is now without sin. So the story again reaches a kind of circle. It's being observed by the symbol of rationalism, the detective. There's another death at the bottom of the stairs. It's a supernatural death in a way. But the body lying at the base of those steps is real the action that drove Karras there is one of self-sacrifice. Faith has triumphed over evil. And in these final moments, Father Dyer appears and issues the last rites. If you watch Father Karras' hand, his bloody hand, he still has enough consciousness remaining to make his confession by indicating his willingness to do so only with the movement of his fingers. And to a priest, that constitutes enough will to confess and receive absolution. Karis's nobility lies in the ultimate act of self-sacrifice that he commits to save the child. All of the shock effects, all of the horror All of the torture and punishment of the little girl are all there to test the faith of this one priest who ultimately makes a sacrifice, the sacrifice of his own life to save the child. And there can be no more religious act or an act of faith than this act of personal sacrifice that Karis ultimately commits. It's similar to the conclusion of um, A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, where Sidney Carton gives his life for someone else who's being led off to the guillotine. That's why the film is completely and utterly about good triumphing over evil. But in this one instance, what I try to do at the end of the film is to suggest... That it is a continuous and ongoing struggle. That evil has not yet been completely been ridden from the earth.
0: She doesn't remember any of it. That's good. All done. Honey, this is Father Dyer. I remember Hi, the Father. aunt
1: Hello. of the boy who was possessed in the Mount Rainier case, who I spoke to, told me that goodbye, um, after course. the exorcism had taken place, her nephew had no memory of what had occurred. So you have the sense that Reagan is not consciously aware of what happened to her, but unconsciously, she has an impulse of gratitude to express to the priest. And Dyer feels her gratitude, which he knows is not for him, but for Father I hope Karras. I hope, I, see you I hope so,
0: too. Father Dyer.
1: And the talisman is finally given
0: from like Chris
1: peace. to Dyer. What does that mean? It means, perhaps, that while good has triumphed over evil, there's the consciousness that This is not an ultimate confrontation, that the battle is eternal and will always be thus. I think it's good that everyone who sees a film is able to project his or her own meaning on that film. I know that people take from The Exorcist what they put into it. Uh, if you believe that the world is a dark and evil place that's what you will take out of the exorcist, it will be reinforced but if you believe that there is a force of good in the world that is forever combating evil sometimes winning victories over evil but never an ultimate victory that the or not as yet an ultimate victory that the battle of good versus evil is constantly going on within us and in the entire world, if you believe, as I do, and as Bill Blatty does, that that's the case, then you will take that away from the exorcist, and that's what we intended to put into it. It's very difficult to expect that every film that's ever been made could live forever. I think all you can do is, is hope that those films that have in some way made a significant mark on the history of film, made a significant impact on the people who've seen these films, will in fact be preserved. One of the very good reasons for a presentation like this a digital video disc with a new digitally remastered soundtrack is that this is the version of the film that will probably last forever all of the prints will have faded or, or become dust and the only real memory of this film will be preserved on this video disc perhaps for a good long time maybe forever but no particular print would ever um, survive in this condition you know unlike a lot of my contemporaries i feel that it's most important to make this digital video the most definitive version of the picture because this is the one that will last this is the way the film will be remembered it's, it's of course not only uh... A preservation tool but it's a research tool it is the legacy that we leave to future generations that indicate to them what our ideas were those of us who who made films how we saw them how we achieved them and what we were trying to say with them